Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. Good morning. What a great morning. What an excellent day to be in the house of the Lord. I am thrilled that uh, you're here, that we're all here, and we've been studying and talking and considering what it means to be people of the word. Our theme has been know the word, live the word, and spread the word. We've talked about knowing God's word. We began a couple weeks ago opening up the idea of living the word. It's really where the rubber meets the road to, to look at God's word and say, this is how I'm going to accomplish my life. Last uh, week, we heard about putting our hope in the word. We've been using uh, Psalm 119. It really was our, uh, our, our backdrop when we began the series on living the word, talking about a path, a path of purity. It's God's word that shows us the path and teaches us about it. We want to stay on that path. We put our hope in his word. And today we're going to use Psalm 119. We're going to continue to use it because it's an excellent, excellent psalm all about God's word. And again, if you haven't read through all of it, take some time this week if you can and read all of Psalm 119. It's a fantastic psalm about God's word. I'm going to begin there this morning as we open the word, and I'm going to uh, hit a few verses from Psalm 119, the theme this morning about trust, trusting God's word, putting our trust in it as we live by it. Psalm 119, I want to read verses 137 and 138, and also 65 and 66. So verse 137, it says, you are righteous, Lord and your laws are right. The statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. And 65, do good to your servant according to your word. Lord, teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I trust your commands. The psalmist here in Psalm 119, he says that God's word is trustworthy. That means something. And he says he will trust it. Trust is really a, it's, it's a full word. It's related a little bit to believe. Sometimes we use it synonymously with believe or we interchange it with believe. But they're a little bit different. Believe, if I say I believe something, believe is accepting an assertion. Somebody says something, I hear something, I hear the assertion, I take it as true, I've believed it. If I'm on the phone with someone and they ask me, hey, what color shirt are you wearing? Or do you have a watch on? And I say, well, I have a white shirt. And no, I don't have a watch. They accept it as true. They've believed it. Now, if they trust me, they may act on that. Maybe they, I've said I don't have a watch. Perhaps they're going to go get me a watch. They, they take some action. They've trusted what I've said. I've learned about believe and trust through my life. Uh, I know 
I've said it before, I've come from a large family. I have a half a dozen brothers, not to mention a couple sisters. And uh, our house was full. And for whatever reason, it seemed like my older brothers, I had five of them, they always wanted something from me. They always wanted to borrow something, right? So one day, as a teenager, I had motorcycles. Well, my brother next in line, right above me, he wants to borrow my motorcycle. And... I said, listen, are you going to do anything dumb? He's like, no, no, I'm not going to do anything dumb. Really, I'm not. He had to persuade me. He had to get me to the point where I believed him. I guess I eventually arrived at the point where I believed him. Okay, he's not going to do anything dumb. I'll, I'll believe it. But did I trust him? When did that happen? When I handed him the keys, that's when I exercised my trust that I believed what he was saying. So I did. I handed him my keys, and he took off on my motorcycle. Now, how long did he keep my trust? Well, until the police called and said they impounded my motorcycle. (laughs) So it was a, a great officer, too. He didn't really impound it. He said, hey, listen, I did you a favor. I got on it and I rode it to the police station. You can just come pick it up. So that saved me money. That was really nice. And I went and I picked up my motorcycle. And since I didn't trust my brother anymore, I saved my money and left him in jail. (laughs) And don't you think he needed to learn a lesson? About trust. (laughs) And now uh, I have a biblical example. A biblical, a biblical example of someone who found it hard to trust God's word. It's in Second uh, Kings. Second Kings chapter 5, we read of a commander of the Aramean army. Aram in your Bible is also Syria. So you might read in one English version, it'll say Syria. You might read in the NIV, it'll say Aram. Uh, The Aramean army was led by this commander. He had leprosy, and he went to Israel seeking healing. So I want to just offer you a bit of uh, that narrative from 2 Kings chapter 5 and about this man, uh, Naaman. So I'm going to read verses 1 and then uh, 9 through 14. It says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored And you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farper, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and he went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father 
if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and he became clean like that of a young boy. Well, that's an amazing narrative. Here Naaman had come to the prophet of God, Elisha. He was seeking healing. He heard a word. He heard a word from God. But it was kind of a strange word. It was an odd word. It was somewhat bizarre. And you know what? Did not sit well with Naaman, did it? Naaman didn't like it. He didn't want to do it. Rather, he had another idea altogether. He had a better word. And that was his word. But his servants came and they counseled him. Trust this word. Trust this word you've heard from this man of God. If he told you to do some grand thing, you would have done it no problem. But he's told you something you don't like. But trust it anyway. Well, Naaman reconsidered. And he turned around. And he went back. He dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. Strange word, but he did it. And it went well with him. He was healed. Some of God's word to us. It's somewhat like the word that Naaman received. Some of God's word to us seems strange. It seems bizarre. It seems to go against the grain. It goes against the grain of culture. It goes against the grain of our life. Some of God's word, we'd rather just ignore it. But to live his word, to live it, we have to come not only to accepting it as true, we have to come to the point where it is trustworthy to us, that we trust it. We have to trust that God's word is right for us, that it brings knowledge and good judgment as we read in Psalm 119, that it is righteous. I was reading a a book, an old book. It's by a man named Jabez Bunting. He was a Wesleyan preacher born in the 18th century. Now, there was somewhat a different view of the word of God in 18th century England compared to 21st century USA. And this is what uh, Jabez Bunting wrote. He said, his word of threatening, indeed you can believe. You give hearty credence to this and consequently tremble. But you cannot trust his word of mercy, which bids your trembling souls rejoice in hope. So Bunting, this Wesleyan preacher in England in the 18th century, he would say that in his day, many had difficulty trusting God's word of mercy, trusting God's word of grace. They didn't believe that God was calling their fearful souls to rejoice and to be overjoyed in the grace that's poured out by Jesus Christ. They didn't rejoice in that hope. They were fearful. They believed God's word where it was threatening, where it seemed like God had wrath. 
So passages like this from Revelation chapter 21, evidently they just didn't take to heart. This is Revelation 21, 5 to 7. It says, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. This is a word that comes to John the Apostle straight from Jesus Christ. He said these words are trustworthy and they're true. To the thirsty, I'll give water. You can be my children. But evidently, a couple hundred years ago, God was to be feared, to trust in a God that could quench the thirst of the parched soul and take care of their sin and make them children of God. To believe that, it was unthinkable. Instead, what was believed, the trustworthy and true words of Christ, the words that were readily, easily trusted, was the very next verse. The close of the quote, Revelation 21.8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So in Bunting's day, many consigned themselves into the ranks of the cowardly. They consigned themselves in the ranks of all the rest that Jesus had mentioned there. And they saw, they saw the wrath of God. They saw his righteous judgment in the fiery lake of burning sulfur as their ultimate destination. And how times have changed. In North America, in the 21st century... Anything that might be associated with the righteous justice of God has become antiquated thought. That is old-fashioned. It is old-fashioned to believe in sin. Things like sexual immorality and being a liar or idolizing something, idolizing someone over God. Well, that's just old-fashioned. Even some Christians, they bristle at the idea that Well, they might have sinned. And when it comes to eternal judgment, this idea of a hell, a fiery lake of burning sulfur, that's an antiquated idea too. Whether it's the the Pew Research Center or uh, the Barna Group or the Gallup Polling Organization, all, all these organizations that collect data by polling people, they report that the belief in hell in America, it's just becoming less and less among the American population and and less and less among Christians. Alan Segal, he's a guy that wrote a book called Life After Death. He uh, is a professor and his quote says, hell is disappearing absolutely. So it's just going away. Really, we're all going to heaven. We're all going to make it. We can't trust God's word when it comes to judgment. We can't trust God's word when it comes to justice. 
nor hell. And people live accordingly. They live according to what they have come to trust. And what's on the flip side then? What's on the other side of, well, I don't believe in any of that. Well, for all those who can't come to terms with God who is divinely and perfectly just and who will mete out perfect justice on a day of judgment, how do they see God operating? Well, it's along these lines. I'm a Christian, and I'm a good person. Yeah, I do some things wrong, but I'm a good person. And you know what? God's good with me being a good person. I am not really concerned about hell or judgment or any such thing. I'll see him in heaven. I've got that trip booked. Leave me alone. Now, press into such a person and, and ask them, what does it mean? What, what does it mean to you to live according to Scripture, to his word? What does it mean to have a biblical worldview? And you're likely to get some pushback. And you can pick your topic. Pick your topic. Is it, is it hell? Is it heaven? Is it materialism? Is it same-sex marriage? Is it LGBT issues? Is it living together outside of marriage? Is it tithing and giving? Is it abortion? Is it the, the notion of absolute truth or even sin? And God's word has a lot to say about all of these topics. But if you take a stance that's perceived just even if it's perceived as intolerant, slightly intolerant, you're likely to hear, well, that's just your interpretation of, of an old book and you can't judge me. I'm, I'm a Christian. Judging me, that's not Christian. And, and I'll grant you, I'll grant you that there's threads and there's slices of the Bible that we can legitimately discuss and, and we may not see eye to eye on. But there are there are points and there are plain statements in the Bible that can't with good reason be debated. Yet, yet lies will be justified. Immoral lifestyles will be justified. Disobedience and disrespect towards leaders will be justified. All because God's word cannot be trusted. It can't be trusted as true. It can't be trusted that it offers to us life and living life. There's this sort of pick and choose mentality. After all, think about it. The last line of the Bible was written 2,000 years ago. And everything else in the Bible is older than that. Hundreds of years older, even a thousand years older. This is ancient stuff, this Bible. Certainly we cannot put our trust in, in these primitive, unsophisticated, ancient people from a patriarchal society that, that recorded this for us. It, it can't be the trustworthy word of God. Or can it? And can we trust it? I came across an article just yesterday. It was by a guy named Eric Metaxas. Uh, who is a very interesting writer, and he published an article yesterday about an archaeological discovery where some inscriptions were found. And it was, it was this dig in China, and it was uh, confirming the great flood of China, the writings that were discovered. Uh, and this flood occurred in the, the first imperial dynasty 
many, many hundreds, uh, thousands of years ago. So this Chinese Great Flood is an event that much of experts and academics and professors, they just considered it plain fiction. Never happened. Well, Metaxas writes this. He says, when the, he says, were the ancients dummies? If so, why does archaeology keep confirming what they wrote? In his conversion story, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis, Lewis explains how his close friend, Owen Barfield, demolished his chronological snobbery. Lewis defined chronological snobbery as the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. So chronological snobbery, Lewis wrote that Metaxas was quoting. In other words, it's that we're modern. You know, we are advanced. We came after all those primitive societies. What did they know? Really, we're smarter. We are more superior. We are more sophisticated than these ancient people. And they could not be trusted with recording the truth, even the truth of their very own history. Now, it had to be imagination. It had to be myth. It had to be superstition. They were just making things up. Well, Metaxas writes on, and he writes this. The ancients, experts today assume, were just too dumb or superstitious to get their own histories right. This attitude has not only blinded us to potential discoveries, it's made it very embarrassing for archaeologists when the ancients do turn out to be correct. I think, for example, of the recent discovery of Goliath's hometown, Gath. Or what about the unearthing of evidence for the biblical king, Hezekiah? The likely discovery of the palace where Pilate tried Jesus. Or the compelling evidence that the house of David, contrary to decades of secular scholarship, was founded by a real historical man after God's own heart. All of these discoveries came as shocks to archaeologists and historians who doubted that such figures, places, or people ever existed. It's amazing. And these discoveries seem to happen with some regularity. This article uh, by Metaxas gives us some great, great confirmation on God's word. It, it helps us to come to trust God's word. But you know what? We don't need it. We do not need archaeological discoveries to confirm God's word. It's a great help. It's nice to know. It's good confirmation. But we don't need it. God's word is true without some archaeological discovery. God's word is true and it can be trusted. We can rely on his word as our source for life. Jesus said to John the Apostle, in Revelation, I quoted, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This word is a foundation for life. How we live as Christians, it's got to be founded upon something. And that something isn't up to us to define. We don't get to define the standard. 
The standard has been defined and it's been set in place by God Almighty. And we need to trust that. And we need to trust not just what we like about it, not just the good things. We need to trust all of it, even the parts we don't like. The portions that make us squirm in our seats, the portions that make us sweat and uncomfortable. We like it. We love it that Jesus said to the thirsty, I will give you water without cost from the spring of the water of life. That's great. I love it. And I will be their God and they will be my children. Yes, I'm a child of God. But we start to get uncomfortable when Jesus says the sexually immoral and the liars and the others will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. But you know, Jesus said all of it, the entirety of it, the whole quote is trustworthy and true. Jesus didn't say, pick what you like and toss out the rest. You know, hundreds of years ago, many feared God as this harsh judge, this this. God who was going to, he was just waiting. He was waiting to consign your soul to the lake of fire. And now it seems like the pendulum has swung in exactly the opposite direction, all the way to the other end of the spectrum. Fear and respect for God's justice has waned to the point where some say hell is disappearing absolutely. We can make our own standards for life. But to live his word, we need to trust it. All of it, and all of it includes grace, and all of it includes mercy, and all of it includes his perfect justice, and all of it is encapsulated in a word, and that word is love. God's mercy and his grace operates out of love. God's justice is rooted in love. The love of God, it bids us trust my word. Trust my word of mercy. Trust my word of grace. And it'll raise your soul to rejoice. Trust my word that I'm just. We want to justify sin. But God, through Jesus Christ, he calls us to repent of our sin. Now, Martin Luther, who lived in the 16th century, said, there was no more a bitter word in Scripture than the word repentance. He lived in fear of God's wrath. He condemned himself constantly. He beat himself up. He whipped himself. But the day came when he discovered he could trust all of God's word. And he found no sweeter word in Scripture than the word repentance. Why? Because he finally saw repentance through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he could stop condemning himself. And he saw that repentance begins with love. It begins with the love of a God who is righteous and the love of a God who would send his son to give his life. He turned his heart to love Jesus who first loved him and gave his life for him. He looked upon the suffering of Jesus. He considered his wounds. He considered the nails. He, he threw himself to the foot of the cross and into the open arms of his Redeemer. And what did we sing this morning? There is no greater love than this. Turning in Christ and 
turning to Christ in repentance, it was not an end. It was a beginning. It wasn't condemnation. It was a turning point to life. And Luther began to live his life by trusting God's word wholly and completely. And you know, that sparked a reformation in the church. Naaman, the Armenian, he nearly missed a magnificent and marvelous healing. Naaman, he didn't like the word God had given. And he rejected it. He was walking away from it. But God had a healing for him. But Naaman wanted God to act according to his own way. Naaman wanted uh, God to behave according to his standard rather than just following and trusting the plain word of God. He did not like what he heard. But you know, he received some good counsel. He turned around and he was healed. I want us to listen to the love story of the word. The love of God for us. His mercy, his grace, his justice. It's for all of us. And when we see it through Jesus who died for us, when we see the love, the love that this is rooted in, and we love him back, our motivation about why we live the way we live, it will change. I want to call for the elders of our church this morning. I want you to come to the altars because today is the day that we pray for people who need a healing. If you need a healing, like Naaman, these altars are open for you this morning. We want to take time to pray for you. We take time once a month for the elders to come to the altars and pray. They pray a prayer of faith for any and all who will come forward. And if you have a physical need, I invite you to receive prayer this morning. But beyond the physical, are you struggling with trusting the Word of God? Are you struggling in some area like we heard Pastor Julie talking about tithing or or, uh, that maybe, you know, you've been living with a sin in your life? You can take care of that this morning. Hey, come down here to these altars and get prayer and, and, and begin to see the love and the mercy and the grace of God and turn yourself. Are you trying to live according to your own standard? You can come for prayer. You can get on track. You can join with another. You can join with an elder here and seek God's grace. God operates out of this foundation of love. He demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And you can take him at his word, you can trust it, and you can receive his grace. I invite you this morning to make your way. Father, we just ask and pray your Holy Spirit would use these elders and ministers as vessels of your grace. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would do works in lives for physical healing, for spiritual direction, for emotional healing, for whatever, God. We pray 
that as elders lay their hands and anoint with oil, you would do a work, Lord. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. And if, you were, uh, if you're not coming for prayer this morning, if you would just keep a, keep a prayerful attitude and pray for these who are at the altar this morning. There is none like you, Lord, our God, our Savior, our King. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Thank you, God, for giving your life for us and making a way for us to be saved, to be redeemed. Father, your grace be upon everyone in this sanctuary as we close this service. Lord, may your Holy Spirit watch over all, keep all and guard all, Lord, as they go on their way. And Lord, return them back again to worship you and to praise you and to thank you. And Father, we ask all these good things in the name of your loving Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you this morning.